Welcome back, my fellow creatives. Welcome to Story Cuppings, where we're going to take a sip from a bit of fiction for those picky readers and working writers out there and see if we enjoy what we drink or if we're going to set the cup down and say, no, thank you. I am feeling a little wonky today. Uh, only because I'm in the midst of grading university finals. So I am excited to read a little bit of fiction with you here. And because uh, Weird and Wonder, the May celebration of fantasy fiction, is wrapping up, I thought, well, we surely must look at a story that has a dragon in it or a bunch of dragons. On the cover, it has a dragon. So I'm going to say a dragon. And that is Mercedes Lackey's novel, Joust. Joust was recommended to me by a friend. And if you have a recommendation, my fellow creatives, or a book I should sip from here on this podcast, please let me know. I will have my contact information below. And that goes for indie authors, other authors. I'm pretty cool with many genres, though I must say I am looking forward to next month, checking out some books for Pride Month for Juneteenth. Uh, very thrilled with uh, some excellent potential titles there that I'm intrigued by. Uh, but for now, let us look at Joust. First chapter, line. The hot wind out of the desert withered everything in its path, including anyone so foolish as to be out in the sun at midday. It carried reddish dust and sand on its wings, and used both to scowl whatever it did not wither. It did not howl, for it had no need to howl and rage for its power to be felt. It only needed to be what it was. Relentless, inescapable, implacable, and ceaseless. This was the dry season, the season when the wind called Kamasin was king. It swept out of the sea of sand, bearing with it the furnace heat that drove man and beast into shelter if they were wise, and sucked the moisture and life out of everything. The earth was baked as hard as bricks, as hot beneath a bare foot as the inside of an oven. Add to that the hammer of the sun, which joined with the Kamasin in a conspiracy to dry up all life. Nothing moved during the Kamasin at midday, not even slaves. Except serfs like Vetch, Alton serfs, the spoils of war, who were less valuable than slaves. Let's pause here. First of all, I have never read Mercedes Lackey before, and I'm going to have to remedy this situation. For while I am not hooked, as it were, on the story itself yet, I am fascinated by the language. 
I mean, this is a pleasure to read aloud. Just think of that, the, the metaphor in the first sentence about the desert, that the desert carried reddish dust and sand on its wings. We are having these dragon metaphors, but it's with the elements. And the fact that the desert is as hot and as destructive as a dragon, it's it, it, it's a fascinating approach. It's very sensory. That's what Mercedes Lackey is. She's very sensory. We are really immersed in this setting. The 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 description that continues of the desert is relentless, inescapable, implacable, and ceaseless. I should correct myself. Not the desert. The desert winds. Which says something that even a far off location like the desert can reach out with its wings, as it were, and cause such destruction, really, to the rest of the land during a certain season all the time. And that there is a name for it. There's a name for the desert. And this is where we get our first true sense of the fantasy genre here. And that is the term, Kamasin. If I am mispronouncing that, I apologize to Mercedes Lackey. But that is a, an unknown term. It is a foreign word. The rest of the words we've seen so far, we can understand as readers. That term, Kamasin, helps us get a sense of, okay, we are not in a normal place. We are elsewhere. And the fact that the Kamasin is was king. We are getting a sense too of what kind of government, what kind of rule people are accustomed to in this place. And the fact that slaves are present, but even slaves have value. This is a nice little subversion of expectation, really, because when we hear the term slave, we current day readers immediately think, well, a slave, nobody treats, everybody treats a slave, a slave like they're they're not worth anything. The fact that slaves have worth, that slaves are allowed to take shelter during a commissine, but not serfs. Now we realize there's something even worse than what we thought as readers was the worst. That is intriguing. That's an intriguing little bit of world building after this description of the desert wind. Let's go on. Little Vetch hunched his shoulders against the pitiless glare of the sun above him and licked lips gone dry and cracked in the heat, as dry and cracked as the earth under his feet. That's a nice little bit of rhyming there, isn't it? The parallelism in the structure. My fellow writers, I highly recommend just looking at a page of Lackey just to dissect the structure of the sentence. Mm. Pardon me? All right. We will read on for a little bit more onto the second page. And then we will move forward just a little because the first chapter is long. It's 20 some pages. The walls of his master's compound offered some protection from the wind, but none from the sun. To his left, the back wall of tan mud brick around Kefty the Fat's workshop and house 
cast no shade at all on the path upon which he trudged. To his right, lower walls of the same material surrounded his master's Tala field. Another word there. Another strange word. Unworldly word. Calling it a field, however, was something of an exaggeration. It could not have held more than 500 Tala plants. A single green oasis in the sand and baked earth, all of them heavy with unripe berries. It was here, only a few steps from the village, where Kefti had his workshop, for two reasons. The first was that Tala had to be irrigated during the dry season if it was to bear any amount of fruit at all. The second was that Kefti would never let anything as valuable as, valuable as a Tala plant grow where he could not put his eye upon it on a regular basis. Vetch was fairly certain that Kefti counted the berries themselves twice daily. Fortunately, the husbandry of the precious Tala was not his concern, for Kefti would never have entrusted anything so important to a serf. He was not even allowed to set foot inside the enclosure. Vetch kept his head bent down as he heaved his heavy leather water bucket along. His arms and shoulders ached and burned with fatigue and his stomach with hunger. His eyes stung with the sweat that dripped and the dust that blew into them. His mouth was dry, full of kamasim grit. Yet, he dared not take a mouthful of water in his bucket or use it to wash the sand from his eyes. That water was for the Tala plants, not to quench the burning thirst of a mere surf. Tala plants... I'm very intriguing. There's something very special about them. Now, we could assume, as readers, well, it's a farmer. It's a farmer, and these are the plants that are being grown there. And yet, there is something special about these plants, because it sounds like if one is going through and counting these berries twice daily, that's what the master is doing, there must be something very valuable here as opposed to, say, corn or, or grapes for a, a, a winery or a vineyard. Uh, something, something is unique here, that these berries would be so valuable, valuable that the master himself feels need to watch over them, not to have a guard, not to just let the workers go in there, that he himself must watch them. Let's move forward a little bit, find out. For the next few pages, now I know I have the past couple of weeks where I've been balancing out, you know, when is it worth having exposition in the first few pages? When is it worth, uh, you know, hearing from our narrator about life in general in this world, having all that world building, or can we pace it out? And I will say, Lackey here, what Mercedes Lackey chose to do is have uh, Vetch, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, kind of describe what his life has been like, but it's being done in a way that fits this moment. For on um, page three, we find out that Vetch is focusing his energies on a very special spot in the ground that he had dug and buried something. And that thing he has dug and buried was a little statue of his master that he curses every time he steps on it. And so in the preceding pages, 
we find out we find out why you know Vetch would be curtsing his master, <laughs> and you know how dangerous it is to be caught cursing, utilizing any magic. As um, page, there we go. Page five, um, the first paragraph here. Uh, Vetch is thinking to himself. Upon Kefti the fat, every misfortune will fall. My sandal to grind its head into, into the dust. Elf. Just as he had chanted over the finger-long Absadi figure he'd made out of the river clay yesterday in the image of his master. Back, the thorns of the acacia to pierce his belly, and the food turned to thistle in his mouth. Cursing a master was absolutely forbidden. If he were caught doing so... Any beating he'd had before this would seem as nothing. He knew that, but he could not curse Kefty. There was nothing. There would be nothing left in his life worth getting up for in the morning. Not that he had any real faith that his curses would come to pass. <sighs> Kefty the Fat had too many charms hung about his person and his house for the curses of one small surf boy to fly past them and strike home. It was something to curse the master, a small blow, if only a symbolic one, something more than merely enduring. And there was always the chance that Vetch would, by sheer dint of repetition, or the chance that he contrived a curse that Kefty didn't have a charm against, get some small crumb of discomfort to plague his master past all the protections. That one small hope was all that Vetch really had, and it was what he lived for knowing that we are reading the story of a boy who is in this situation. By the middle of page five, we understand just the agony of this boy's existence. It sounds horrible. It still sounds like it could be something here and now, though. Yes, we've heard of the names are unique. We hear of these Tala fruits and the Kamasin desert winds. But it still, it still sounds like it's something that could be here. Could be. But then we get to page six. And, oh, wait, no. There it is, page eight. My apologies. Page eight. And we are learning just the struggle it is just to get water from the source from the river to pour into the cistern for irrigating these tala fruits. And on page eight is what is when we learn what the tala fruit is for. Tala could only be grown during the dry season, after the Great Mother River had shrunk to a shadow of her wet season greatness. It only sets its berries after the sun-baked fields of wheat and barley were harvested and reduced to bleached stubble, and the earth beneath the stubble was riddled with cracks as wide as a man's hand. But tala fruits were worth their weight in electrum. Mm, that sounds interesting. Wait an electrum, for tala fruits gave the jousters their ability to control their great dragons. 
here we are starting to see the connection with the Kamasin desert wind being visualized as a dragon. And now here we see why dragons are present in this world. Dragons. Dragons and Tala were inseparable. The only reason to grow the Tala was because of the dragons, the creatures that were the greatest weapons that the Teons had. Vetch had only ever seen the dragons at a far distance, overhead, flying out from the city of Mephis a little up the river, gold and scarlet, blue and green against the hard, bright blue of the sky. They would have been beautiful if they were not so terrible. Dragons, well, in part. They were responsible for his being a serf. The war would not have gone so badly for Alta if the Teons hadn't had so many more dragons and jousters. He supposed, Dolly, that he should be cursing them too. But he could only focus his hate on one target at a time. And at that moment, that target was Kefti. And so here we see my readers and my writers. That by page nine, for I was, I was a third of the way into page nine, we understand now quite a deal, good deal about this world. This is a world that has gone through a war. This is a war where dragons are utilized in war. And even our current everyday reader knowledge knows that dragons cause a lot of damage. And so we understand now how. Vetch's situation could be due to a war where dragons wreaked havoc upon the lands and could easily allow one side to win over another. We also now understand why Vetch has to work on the fruit he does and what that fruit is for. Though we are curious as to how the Tala fruit could control the dragon. Hmm. And we also understand that the world itself is an enemy of our character that this world that's this this boy vetch not only has a conflict with his master with his society but also with the very setting he is in living through this dry season that's a lot packed in just 9 pages am i going to keep reading I think I will. I think I'd like to sit more of this. Not just because the language is beautiful. The itself is beautiful. I, I'm intrigued by how these dragons would be controlled. I am intrigued by how this one boy could get away from this master. I think I'd like to take another sip from this story. And perhaps you, if you are looking for one last fantasy read for Weird and Wonder, maybe you'd like to take a sip from Mercedes Lackey's Joust as well. Stay tuned next month. I will continue into some fantasy, but I'm also keeping an account that Pride Month is in June as well. So we'll see what cups we get to sip from next time. Read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers. <laughs>